Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 15. So if you have the old paper Bible, it's right down the middle, man. Just kind of put that thing right in half, and you should get right about where Psalm 15 is. And as you're turning there, I, I remember I was about to graduate college. This is like 21-ish years ago. And so I was about ready to graduate college. And I was feeling pretty good about myself. And at the time, I was living in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley. And I had just been basically hired on as a, my first full-time job as a um, youth pastor for junior high kids at a church there in, uh, in the valley, as we called it. And so I was feeling pretty good about myself, and I, I thought, you know, um, um, and, and because it's my first full-time job, is I was going to be making more money than I'd ever made in, in my whole life. And it wasn't that much, but for me, it was a lot because this is, again, you know, the kind of the first time doing this. And so I thought, you know what, Jacobs, it's time to start living the high life, you know? I mean, you're 22, you've worked hard, it's time to cash in, you know? And so there's this real swanky area in the valley called Woodland Hills, and they had this one area in Woodland Hills called Warner Center, which was especially swanky. And they had these condos in the area of Warner Center that were really nice, and I'd seen a sign or something, and, and I'm like, I wanna live here. So my roommate at, in college the, at, at the time and I, we went over there, and we, and we walked into this beautiful place, you know, and I remember this big giant atrium with these fountains and plants and everything, and, and, and as, I was like, wow, this place is beautiful. But as I was walking in there, I kind of got this feeling that basically said in, in my head, it was like, you know what, Tim, you're not worthy of this place. This is kind of the feeling that I got, right? And so we walked across the, this big kind of lobby area over to the, the sales desk where this lady was at. And, and we introduced ourselves. And after we, it took a while to convince her that we didn't need her to sign for a delivery or anything, you know, because we just, we didn't have like a t-shirts and shorts, whatever else. And it's like, no, we're actually here to, to, we like to be renters of this beautiful condo complex that you have here. And, and all of a sudden she looked at us with the look that said, basically, you guys aren't worthy to live here. I could just kind of tell, right? And, and so um, through the process of the conversation, uh, she said, well, you know, you might be able to rent um, a condo from us, but you need to understand that we have a minimum income requirement. And the minimum income requirement that you had to have was, was literally double the salary that I was going to start making. And I was like, oh man. But, but then I thought, well, hey, I said, I said to her, I said, that's not going to be a problem because my parents, you know, they make way more than your little minimum income requirement. I'll just have them sign and then I can live here. It won't be a problem. And she said, no, 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 that's, that's not how it works here. You see, if you're going to be living here, you need to meet the minimum income requirement. You and your friend here, right? You both each need to meet individually this income requirement because we just don't want anyone living in our posh little place. And all of a sudden, I realized, like, whoa, I really do not belong here. Like, I am not worthy of this. And even though I was, like, ready to graduate with my business degree and I have my, you know, somewhat charming personality, um, that was not going to be enough to get me into this place. And it was kind of a rude awakening for me at the time. 
I'd love to go back there now and see how things might be different. But um, anyway, might still not meet the minimum income requirement. But, but whatever, doesn't matter. Um, still have my charming personality. But when the Israelites would go to the, up to Jerusalem, when they would go to, up to Jerusalem to worship God, and they would go to a festival or a feast to, to proclaim their worship of God, and they would go to the temple, they kind of had a similar experience. Because they would go up to the gates of the temple, and the obvious question would be, who is worthy to go into the presence of God? Do we have what it takes to be able to enter into where he is? What does it mean, and who is worthy, and what, do you, what qualities do you need to have to be allowed into the temple where the presence of God is? Who can be a guest in God's house? Is anyone worthy? Because unlike the condo buildings in Warner Center that drew the line on income and, and social status, the temple of God is a place where innocence and purity and truth and justice and goodness are the dominant features. It was a place that represented the very presence of God, and that's no small thing. And because of that, you had to, to, to prepare yourself for such an experience. You had to examine yourself for such an experience. It's not just like getting up and going to the mall or going to the movies. This is a big deal. And so David writes this psalm, and it's really just a song. It's a poem that is designed to help the Israelites understand the holiness of God and then the corresponding response that we as people are to have upon entering his presence. And so the first several verses, and I pulled them from the New Living Translation, say this. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? And really, you could look at this as less of a question about us and more of an explanation or a picture of God. Because when we consider the bigness of God and the transcendence of God and the holiness of God, who is worthy to be in his presence? And this is a common reaction that all kinds of, of individuals have in Scripture when they encounter God. It's really kind of remarkable how consistent it is. Because when the prophet Isaiah is in the presence of God in Isaiah chapter um, 6, his immediate response is, woe is me, which is another way of saying, I am doomed. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he wouldn't have noticed that. He wouldn't have seen that. He wouldn't have been, the, the problem with his mouth, being a, a mouthy guy, a guy who spoke profanely and cursed, that wouldn't have been as big of a deal to him had he not seen himself in light of the presence of God. And so his immediate reaction is, I am ruined in the presence of this great and mighty God. Job similarly says, when he's confronted with the holiness of God, his response is, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And there's all of the pride that I thought I had and how sure of myself I thought I was and however wonderful I may have seen myself in light of God and all that he is, I, all I can do is say I hate myself and, and repent for my attitude. 
That God, it's just the mere presence of God. It's the mere exposure to his holiness. And that response is what we have. When Peter realizes that Jesus is not just an ordinary individual, but he's the son of God, he begs him, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And yet this is a good thing to be in the presence of God and to consider him and to ponder him. And when you do that and you create space in your heart for him and you realize who he is, you change as a person. That's why it says in Proverbs chapter three, verse six, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's not entrance into a really nice college or reading some really great intellectual book. It is when you have awe of God and respect of God and consideration of God and all that he is, you actually learn, you actually become wiser. There's something about proximity to God and knowledge of him and engagement of God that really is like a mirror. So when you hold up a mirror to yourself, you see the truth, right? Which oftentimes isn't a good thing. You go, oh, I didn't realize I had all this hair out of place. Or I didn't realize this growth on my, or whatever it is, right? I got a problem, I got to deal with this. It's like this guy that we have at the gym. I haven't told you a, a, a gym illustration in a long time because I know it's annoying. So I'm a little overdue. So I have a gym illustration for you. So in our gym, we do all of our workouts together. Everybody does the same thing, right? And we have this one guy at the gym who's just, he's just a beast. He's unbelievable. I mean, this guy will load the entire barbell like all the way to the ends with just with all these weights. And he just throws it over his head. I mean, it's almost like he just throws it over, he just spins it around, you know, and hop on one foot and whistle and, you know, and let me grab yours too. And, I mean, the guy is just insanely strong. And the thing about a guy like that, when you have a guy like that in your gym, is any notion that you had, or in my case, any notion that I had, that was actually seriously, or in any case, legitimately strong, is completely out the window in light of this guy. Because I see how incredibly strong this guy is. And as they say, his warm-up is my workout, right? I mean, he literally, like he, wore, like I watch the way he warms up with it. I go, that's the weight that I struggle with. It's really kind of sad. And, and it's true. Now, the wonderful thing about that, though, as much as you might say, well, that's really depressing. Well, it might, you can look at it as depressing, or you can say, you know what? What is that? That teaches me something about myself. That if I actually got it in my head that I, that I was a seriously strong individual, I am now, I am reality checked, literally, by the fact of what I can see and go, okay, well, now I have to deal deal with, with what is true. That maybe wasn't what I thought I was because there's people that are much stronger than I am. But what happens? It's the same kind of thing. In the presence of a powerful and holy God, we realize who we really are, that we are in deep need of grace and forgiveness and mercy. And so you have guys like Job and Isaiah and Peter who are forced to confront the truth about themselves in light of the glory of God, and it humbles them every single time. And so, you know, as we start, as we think about this passage, and we look at the new year, 2018, the thing that strikes me is, you and I need to become people who really create space for God in our lives. So, you know, like the old illustration of the rock in the jar, you know, you have the rocks, the big rocks, and the little rocks in the sand, and how do you get it all in the jar? Well, you gotta put the big rock in first. And so uh, that's kind of one of the things I want to talk to you about today is, have you considered the space you're going to create for God as you look at 2018, to, to ponder him, to think about him, to be in his presence? 
Because, and we'll come back to this a little bit later on, but I'm telling you, I've been in this business for a while, and the people who stand strong over time are the ones who just guard their hearts and their time, and, and, and they guard this space with God, and they just don't ever compromise on it. Or if they do, it's very rare. You know, we're not like a, a non or we're basically kind of a non-traditional church in a lot of ways. You know, I don't wear a robe and we don't have a pipe organ and we don't have all these rituals or whatever else. But there, there is a, a, there is a, a wonderful concept of, of a, of, I don't want to call it a ritual because that's not, but, but a, a regular practice that you, that you make in your life of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to be here and this is going to be a tradition in my life to be able to come here and not just sit here, but to engage with God's people. And I was telling the people in the green room earlier in the service or earlier before we started who, uh, the, the, the tech people and the, and the people that help out around here and really make this thing happen. And I go, you know, I, I just, I, I can't say it any other way. You guys, what you do is the most important thing in the world because I, I have yet to find a better prescription for the remedy of, of human suffering and, and depravity and, um, and basically uh, human disaster that takes place on this planet. When we see families breaking apart, when we see people killing themselves, when we see people shooting each other, when we see people high on all kinds of drugs, and we go, what's gonna solve all of this? And the, and the only thing that's gonna solve it is, is getting into the presence of God because that's the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of wisdom. And one of the things that we have as a challenge in our life is that our culture tells us that we're kind of in the center and everything revolves around us, right? Everything just kind of is in orbit around us, you know? And so we, our opinions and our judgments and our ideas are really the things that are the core and that, you know, everything should really kind of revolve around us. And what you see in scripture, especially in this Psalm, right out of the bat is we consider God, God is in the center and we revolve around him. The whole universe revolves around him. We just sang four songs talking about how God is in the center. It is a theocentric universe. It is a theocentric idea that my life is, it's not about me. It's about him. And if I start there, I actually begin to gain and grow in wisdom and knowledge. And so this guy, Anselm of Canterbury, I quoted him last week, but I really like him. He's, a, he's like from the 1100s, but he says things that just seem so relevant to today. And he said, hey, I love his little quote here. I probably read it several years ago, but I come back to it again because I love what he says. He says, now then, little man. I love that, you know? You little guy, you think you're so great. Now then, little man, for a short while, fly from your business. Hide yourself for a moment from your turbulent thoughts. Break off now your troublesome cares and think less of your laborious occupations. Stop, be, stop running around like, you're, like a chicken with your head cut off. That's what he's basically saying. And this was in the 1100s when people didn't have the internet or like anything else to do all day, but just kind of like, you know, hunt for food and water and not get killed or whatever, um, you know, from all these other tribes or whatever else. This is, you know, this is, not, this, you didn't have all the, you didn't have traffic on the freeway, but this is, he's saying, break off from all of your worries and, and busyness for a minute. Make a little time for God and rest for a while in him. Enter into the chamber of your mind and shut out everything but God and whatever helps you to seek him. And when you have shut the door, seek him. Speak now, oh my whole heart. Speak now to God. I seek your face. Your face, Lord, do I desire. I love that. We have the ability to shut off the phone and all these goofy gadgets that we have all over the place and to say, God, I want to seek your face. Who can be a guest in the house of God? 
And so we have this list of qualities that reveal it in Psalm 15. And again, it, it kind of reveals more about God than it does about us, and I'll explain why in a moment, but this is what he says. We'll just go ahead and read it. He says, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Those who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Such people will stand firm forever. Now the first thing you notice in here is, is what's not in here. And what's not in here is, you know, who may get into the house of God? Well, you know, people who dress this way or, you know, have, know the secret handshake, you know, or some kind of password or have some kind of outward ritualistic ceremonial thing that they have to do. Like, it's not important to God. All of these things have to do with moral character. And all of these things have to do with how we treat the person around us. And that should be very interesting. You know, the, what, when it looks at who is worthy enough to stand in the presence of God, and what God is interested in are people who treat their neighbors the way this list describes. That that is of utmost importance to God. Even Jesus himself, when he was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you bring your gift to the altar, and you're, if you're going to offer your gift to God and sacrifice, and you realize, like you got a little dove or a goat or whatever, and you realize that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there, and you go, and you be reconciled to your brother first, and then come back and make your sacrifice. Because God's not interested in your sacrifice if you have a broken relationship with somebody. Now, I think we read past that and go, ah, who cares? Nah, he doesn't mean me. <laughs> he doesn't mean my situation. He means somebody else. But when you, you know, when, if, if every single one of us took that really, really seriously, like, God, I'm not even going to, you know, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm not I'm even going to go to church again until I fix this relationship problem. Whoa. I wonder how many people would show up next week. You know what I mean? Like, like that, that's, a, that's a serious thing. In fact, th I, this, I actually, this, this, when Jesus said that, and we were teaching on it a few years ago, it really convicted me. <clears throat> and I went out, and there was a person that I hadn't spoken with to in years. And I um, reached out to this person because I knew that I had made them mad. And, um, you know, I kind of had my reasons, but I still knew they were mad at me. And, and I, I said, hey, you know, I'd like to talk to you and just, you know, we don't have to be best friends, but I'd just like to clear the air and, you know, I don't know, maybe catch up or whatever. And, and, and I did. And, and I, it was very hard for me to do that, you know, but I did it because I, I and I'm just saying that, and I didn't do it for years, even though I read this and I was living in disobedience to it, but I did it anyway because at some point, because I was preaching in front of you guys and I thought, well, I can't be a hypocrite, you know, I have to actually live this stuff out, but it's very hard. But what, what the, the idea was though, what it did was it brought peace to that relationship. And even though I'm still not necessarily really great friends with this person, it did bring peace where there was conflict. Very, very interesting that this is what's important to God. So let's just tick through these things um, and kind of capture them and then we'll see what we're going to do with it. So if we ask the question, what is important to God? You know, is, who, who's worthy to enter his, into his presence? Well, there's several things. First, obedience to his law. That's what it says. Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right. And you can say that's a, that's a pretty di difficult thing. And that's true. But if you were to follow the law of God, it, wouldn't you want, I mean, listen, for someone who follows the law of God, wouldn't you love them to, to have them as a neighbor? 
right? Even someone that follows the Ten Commandments or, you know, loves their neighbor as himself, that'd be a great neighbor, right? A neighbor, a boss, a spouse, a parent, a child, a teacher, or a politician, or a police officer. All these people, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if, they, if they followed those qualities, if they had that quality of following obedience, obedience to the law of God? That'd be amazing. Second, speaking truth. They speak truth from sincere hearts, but they also don't gossip about their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Third, courageous conviction. These are all things. I just kind of summarize what's in this psalm. So when it says those who despise flagrant sinners, you say, that's kind of mean. Just because a person's a sinner, you're supposed to hate them. We're not supposed to hate people, right? I don't think it means you walk up to a person who's, who's a, you know, a flagrant sinner, like who's purposely living an evil lifestyle and start yelling at them and say, I despise you. But what it means is it means having the courage of your convictions to not get caught up in the things that they do. Because oftentimes people who are flagrantly sinning can make a lot of money in the short term or have a lot of success in the short term and you can be lured into that or you can be tempted to look past that because of their popularity or their, their enticement of all the, the things they're getting in terms of the world. And he's saying, I want people who are gonna be able to see through that and say, I don't like people that do that. And at the same time, defend the cause of those who are trying to live a life of integrity and often suffer for it because they aren't doing the things that it takes to get ahead in the short term, you know? And to be able to have the courage of convictions to treat people in a way that's honest and right. Next, it is integrity. They keep their promise even when it hurts. And then finally, I would say free from greed. So when it says that this is a person who lends their money without um, interest, that doesn't mean that you can't work at a bank. What it means is, is that when your buddy needs to borrow a few hundred bucks because, you know, their car's broken down or the rent's due or something like that, you don't go, oh, this is a great opportunity for me. You know, I can lend you the money, but let's see, the rate right now is uh, five and three quarter percent, and uh, we're going to set you up on a little schedule here, and that'll equal this, and so here we go, and all you expect to pay me on the 17th of each month or whatever else, and if not, we're going to send, you know, Tony out to break her thumbs. Um, that's not what we do, right? Now, in, in a professional institution, that's one thing, but between friends, you give, you lend someone money, and you do it because you're, you're, you have the faith to part with it if it's a, an act done in mercy for a friend of yours who's suffering or struggling. But you don't use, you don't let greed get in the way of your relationships, so these are the, you know, this is the kind of person that God is saying, this is the kind of person I want to be around. This is the kind of person who's allowed in my presence. This is the kind of person who meets the requirement. They say, well, that's great. And we can end the sermon right now and go, oh, you know, so be like that person. And everyone goes, ah, oh, that's great. I'm going I'm to have integrity and I'm not going to charge interest on my friends and blah, blah, blah. And what a great sermon this was. But if oh, it's all you got, you'd be missing the whole point. Because the whole point of this passage is for you to read this list and go, oh my gosh, I'm in deep trouble. I'm in deep trouble because God is holy. And who can stand in his presence? Well, it says someone who lives a blameless life. Anyone qualify for that? I don't. What about speaking the truth from sincerity? Speaking the truth from sincerity. When was the last time you were late for a meeting and you walked in and you're like, hey everybody, listen, I'm sorry. I just wanted you to know the reason I'm late is because I failed to adequately give myself enough time to be here. I woke up late. I was, I was a little bit lazy and I'm sorry that I wasted your time and I should have showed you more respect by working harder to get here. <laughs> yeah. 
You don't do that. You walk in and go, oh man, the traffic is crazy. These snowbirds, man, they're clogging up the roads. These Canadians, it's all their fault. And then in Siri, she gave me wrong directions. I mean, how am I supposed to know? What's wrong with the technology? Is Tim Cook guy's crazy? It's not my fault. I'm late, I'm a victim, right? It's not true. It's always your fault, well, always your fault, but it's most of the time your fault if you're late. You know it, but you don't speak the truth. How about keeping a promise even when it hurts, right? Oh, I said I'd be there, but you know, uh, we got kind of busy. And on and on it goes. So if we're not careful, we miss the whole purpose of this psalm. Because on the one hand, all these qualities are important, but what's even more important is stepping back and realizing that none of us are worthy of this list. That all of us are like, oh, if this is what it takes to be in the presence of God, God, I don't belong in your presence. I can't do it. I can't do it. So what happens? It opens the door, first of all, for our need for forgiveness. And second of all, even the glaring, the bigger issue is forgiveness, but then the second thing is, who's gonna give it to us? How are we gonna get it? Because I cannot be in the presence of a holy God in my state. Because like Peter and Job and Isaiah, when I, the minute I get near to God, I, am, I realize my massive moral deficiency. So where does it leave us? Well, thankfully, we do have a way into the presence of God. And thankfully, as I put in the title of my sermon, we have the code, the five-letter code that gets us past the iron door, gets us through the firewall, pays our first and last month's rent, and all of the months in between. And that five-letter code is J-E-S-U-S, Jesus. He is the one who gets us into the presence of God, not by anything that we've done, but by his work and his work alone. And there's something amazing that happened when Jesus died on the cross, when he was crucified, when he died, the Bible says that the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, why that's significant is because behind the curtain was the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. In front of the curtain was everybody else. And you could not go back there. They had very strict rules of who could go in there. And it wasn't you because you're not good enough and I'm not good enough. So there was always a distance and a separation because like Psalm 15 says, who is worthy to go in the presence of God? You got to meet these requirements. So that just nixes everybody in this room. But when Jesus is crucified, the curtain is torn. And the tearing of that curtain represents now full and complete access to the presence of God. And why? Because Jesus is the only one who has ever lived out those qualities of Psalm 15 in absolute perfection. And so now given that, look at what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, therefore brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That should blow you away. You see, this is the thing that nobody gets. We have this simultaneous, almost paradoxical thing where we have this holiness of God, where we recognize that, that he is so big and he is so 
pure and he's so amazing and he's so righteous and good that I have no standing before him whatsoever on my own. And yet at the same time we are told that because of Jesus we have full access to the Holy of Holies, the holiest of places because the curtain was torn and we can go completely and um, walk right into the presence of God. And we should have full assurance of it. You should never doubt it. And yet we all do. Well, I'm not good enough, God. I'm, not, I'm just a sinner, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're a sinner. That's why there's Jesus. What's the problem? What's the problem? Well, you don't understand. No, you don't understand. You don't understand how effective the blood of Jesus was to cover, yes, even your sick and disgusting sin. It was. Because if you don't think it was, if you think, well, my sin's too bad, I, I have, you know, G then, then really have a low view of Jesus on the cross. You're really kind of an insulting Jesus, to be honest with you. Because, you know, for the Son of God to get beaten and whipped and mocked and spit on and tortured with a crown of thorn and get nailed on this cross and bleed out for hour after hour after hour after hour innocently, but then, well, you kind of, you know, one-upped him with your sin, that's, that's, that's kind of a pathetic thing for you to think. The Son of God, the blood of the Son of God is thick enough to cover even your sin. Now here, and here's the thing, and I know this might be sensitive to some of you guys coming from different, uh, different, like a Catholic background, but here's the deal. You do not need a priest to go between you and God. I'm not a priest. Sometimes people think I'm a priest. You are, or excuse me. Sometimes people even call me father. Like the only people that should call me, there's three people that should call me father, and they're my kids, right? Don't start calling me father, because I got one of these, man, and you know, I, you know, I, there's a couple reasons why I did not want to become a priest, right? And <laughs> I don't qualify, let's just say that. Um, so, and I don't want to wear those robes, but even more than that, right? I don't need, to, please don't ask me to be an intermediary between you and God. That's a pathetic thought. Me? I can't do that. You don't need me because you have a high priest already. His name is Jesus. He's your priest. Do you want to confess something? Now, you can, we're supposed to confess our sins to each other from a community standpoint, but you go directly to God. You don't need to have this. God, can you imagine what a crappy father God would be? I mean, if, you were a, if you're a dad, would you like hire, would you like outsource an admin or something? You know, hire someone out in India for five bucks an hour and tell your kids, listen, if you want to talk to me, you got to go talk to what's-her-face, you know, send her an email and she'll set an appointment for me. Would you do that? You know? The person out there is like, you know, I will set something up for you between you and your father, you know, and we'll see. And I let, pass along a message, I'll pass along to him. No, you go, this father's creepy and horrible. That's not a good dad. Yeah, a good dad should be respected, but a good dad, you have full action. You can, my kids can, you know, they can come in, you know, they can call me, they can text me anytime. And if I, I mean, if I'm busy or something, I'll say, can we wait a little bit? But I want my kids to know they have full access to me. What kind of craziness is this? Not only that, but it's just unscriptural. You have as much access to God or, or you know, to, to, to God as, as anyone else, as Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, anybody. You have much, complete access to God. Now this, now, and again, look what it says in Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We've got to be serious about this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He's just like us, tempted just like us, but he did not sin. He fully fulfilled the requirements of Psalm 15 and all the other requirements as well. Let us then with confidence, there it is again, full assurance, right? Holding fast to this whole thing. Draw near to the throne of grace. Not far away, but near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. 
So what is it we have here? This beautiful blend of truth and grace. And I tell you something, you know what? Um, in, in my work as a, as a chaplain in the Air Force, and, and just here as a, as a pastor over the last 10 plus years here and then before, you know, I will tell you the thing I run into more than anything else. I, I, you know how many young men, do you know how many young men I have talked to? It's staggering to me that I have talked to. And I listen and, I, and, I, and, and they tell me, and, and they're angry and they're wiping out on the relationships in their lives and they're, they're, have, they're struggling as fathers and they can't hold down a, a job very well. They're, they're struggling in that area. And when we get to the bottom of it, there is this massive amount of anger directed at dad. I don't mean heavenly dad. I mean dad, earthly dad. You know how many men, now there's women too, but how many young men I've had to say, you know what you need to do? You need to forgive your father. Because until you forgive your father, he is always gonna, he's always going to his words and everything he's ever said and done is always going to be the thing you live by and you will turn into him in some cases you already have. But the only way you're gonna forgive your father is if you understand first the love of your heavenly father for you, your incredible need of forgiveness from him first. And then when you realize how incredible it is that your heavenly father would love you and forgive you, you now have the capacity to forgive anyone in your life starting with your father. And I hear these guys and they go, wow, you are exactly right. I'm not exactly right. The Bible's exactly right. I'm just the messenger. And I, I mean, look, I got, <laughs> you tell me something that makes more sense. Because the last thing a, a young man needs is, is, a, is this permissive God who just says, I don't care, you do whatever you want. But the other last thing a young man needs is, is, a, is an angry God who is like a, a celestial representation of his earthly father. We have to wipe that out. And I'm only saying this because I just, I have these conversations over and over and over and over again, and I can't, have, can't find anything better to say to anybody. There's no philosophy out there that frees people. And so now when you tell a young man or a young woman that they have full access into the presence of God, that, that God wants to be the, the father that they did not have, they now start possessing the capacity to break from those lineages and the cycle of, of um, dysfunctionality that's ruined their family. So I, I approach I approach with reverence and with awe a holy God who when you see God someday will blow your mind. People go, oh, you know, I can't see God, so how do you know he's there? Trust me, if you saw God, your face would melt. You don't want to see God. Your face would melt off and you would be very ugly from that point on because you'd have no face. So be happy you can't see God. Someday you will and you got to figure that out. And, and, whether, and whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell, when you stand before a holy God, it will be very clear where you fit in the universe, baby. And you realize that, oh, the universe doesn't revolve around me. It revolves around God. So this leads us back to the whole purpose of the psalm, which is preparation for worship. And as I worship God, he is elevated. But as I elevate him, I am elevated myself. And now it says, the last verse, such people will stand firm forever. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have problems. 
means you might have a tremendous amount of problems in your life. Still, that's, that's, not, that's not what it means. What it means is that when it comes to being in the presence of God, you will never be like shaken out of it. That's kind of what the language has to do. Never, never removed from it. That, that you will live a life, even regardless of the things that happen around you, there will be a stability in your life that will carry you through all of the ups and downs and triumphs and tragedies of living on this planet. And I've seen that with many of you over the course of the years that we've been together. I've seen you grow and I've experienced, some of you experienced incredible trials and tragedies, the death of loved ones or tragic medical problems that you've had or problems with your kids or financial issues or marriage issues or whatever else. And where many people in the world, it would just wipe them out completely. You, you somehow have this perpetual uh, low grade simmering hope that continues to strengthen you throughout the course of your life. And I've seen it in so many of you. And you, all you're doing is living out this song perfectly. Because while we can't, we can't live out these qualities perfectly, we know that Jesus did. Now my life begins to say, okay, if these are the things that are important to God, is how I treat my neighbors, is the things that come out of my mouth, is the mercy that I have for those who are struggling around me. If that's what worship to God is, then I'm gonna do my very best to align myself as closely as possible with Jesus. I become like him in this, but I don't worry about not meeting the requirements exactly because he's done that, giving me access. I get his righteousness. I have full access to God. Now I just try to strive to be like him. And when I do that, I grow I grow in my own sense of wisdom. I grow in my own sense of resilience and strength. And that is a beautiful thing. And so when we look into 2018, I guess my main challenge for you is you must, you and I must create space for God. We must create space to be able to ponder him and to worship him and to think great thoughts about him and to take him at his word seriously. Because I'll tell you something about our church. You know, it was awesome. Last week over our four services, we had over a thousand people. It was really great. It It was packed, right? All four services we had. And it's so sad though because I'll see people who I haven't seen since Easter, you know? And then I hadn't seen, and I'll see him again this Easter, so it'll be like, hey, see you in a few months, you know? Um, and I know that's mean. That sounds mean, but here's the thing. People like that, they don't, they don't, um, they don't stand firm. They don't stand firm. Because they think they're like paying tribute, you know? Well, I guess I gotta go to my Christmas Eve, huh? you know? And I'll come here and do my thing, and because it's when I, you know, I'm, kind of, I'm a religious guy, whatever. That's that you don't get it, man. So when you create space for God, what you're doing is you're saying, look, <clears throat> I know my kids got soccer practice. I know that, you know, we have, we're busy. We've got things going on. But we take time for this place. We take time to, and then we have, on, on the weekends, and we have community time with, with, with our, in, in our connection groups. But this is what we do. And when you do this, you have this incredible strength. And again, like I said, I've seen it in you. And we're building this culture here. I've watched it. I've watched families get established here, like young couples find each other and get married. When other people their age are just out screwing around and making nothing out of their lives, these people are building lineages and heritages and homes together, and there's peace between them, and there's happiness, and there's fulfillment, and it's a beautiful thing to watch and cultivate, and it's so amazing because, like, there's people that— I'm thinking of one couple in particular that, that, uh, that met here at our church and now they got married and, and a lot of uh, our guys here have, have um, discipled this one guy and then he got married this one gal and now she's kind of discipling my youngest daughter and it's like so cool to watch like this, this, um, 
this compounding strength over time when people create space and they align their lives up with the, with the reality of the goodness of God. And either you're gonna do that or you're not. So I guess all my whole challenge to you was will you be someone who takes these things seriously? We're not complicated at Compass Church. You know what we do? We just take the word of God seriously. It's all we do. Like we, we spend 40 minutes and we just riff on Psalm 15, an ancient text, and we pull it out and we dust it off and we go, this is true more than anything else at Barnes & Noble or Amazon bestseller list. This is the most true thing in the world. So let's spend 40 minutes diving into it and let ourselves be changed by it and align our lifestyle to what it says and align our thoughts to what it says. And when you do that, you become strong. That's all I want for you this year. Let's just get strong, man. And the way you do that is by, again, You've got to shut out the other stuff that's just, it's just tripe. Anyway, I've said all that I can think of to say about this. I have nothing else. I'm done. So let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, you know, today uh, I just want to give you an opportunity to, to repent if you haven't done so. You know, you have a, a father who wants to be near to you. It is not he who has run from you. You have run from him. And until you understand that, uh, it's not going to be very good for you. But maybe you're here today and you're ready to say, you know what? I want to be in the presence of God. I want to live in the presence of God, but I cannot do that on my own. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I can't meet the qualities on that list. I know what comes out of my mouth. I know the anger in my heart. I know the cunningness and the deceit, deceitful ways. If I'm judged based on my attitude and practices towards others, I know I could never enter the presence of God. But thank God for Jesus. So if you're here today, just tell him, God, I need forgiveness from your son. I need Jesus in my heart. And I believe that he has paid the price for my sins. And I rest on his grace. And so today I turn my life over to him. And I ask that you would welcome me into your presence. And walk with me. And be my father. Now and forevermore. God, thank you that we have this beautiful psalm that does nothing more than lead us to Jesus. It's just so self-evident that our problem, is can, our problem can only be solved through the one you provided. So thank you for this beautiful truth that we are the stewards of and may we cultivate it in our own lives. May we ponder you and think about you, think great thoughts of you and do great things for you as we look ahead to this next year that by your grace, you will give to us in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.